0: Welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of The Digest. My guest is Christian Coates Ulrichsen, Middle East fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy and an associate fellow of Chatham House's Middle East and North Africa program. His most recent book, published by Hearst in February, is Qatar and the Gulf Crisis. Our conversation today will focus on the difficult, challenging, and tangled relations between Iran and their Gulf neighbors, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Christian, uh, welcome back to the Arab Digest podcast. Thank
1: you for having me back.
0: Look, let's begin with where we are now. We're we're talking about Iran and Gulf relations. So what do we have? We've got the Trump era, the withdrawal from the nuclear deal, the ramping up of hostilities, maximum pressure, the assassination of Soleimani, the, uh, the IRGC head, but I want to narrow it down just to two states, if, if, if I may, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And, and let me begin with the Saudis. How are the Saudis managing their relations with Iran?
1: Well, I think the Saudis have certainly signed on to the de-escalation in uh, intra-Gulf tension that we saw in the aftermath of the killing of Soleimani in January 2020 the Saudi response, which was to go to Washington to effectively warn against an escalation and also in their own statements of Saudi leaders was very different from the rhetoric we had been hearing in 2017-2018 when Mohammed bin Salman, for example, was on record as saying it would be better to fight the Iranians in Iran than in Saudi Arabia. So on that extent, I think the lessons the Saudi leadership took from the attack on Abqaik and Qura'is in September 2019, which they believe, with a degree of evidence, was launched either from or by
0: Iran or Iranian-linked groups. This is the uh, Saudi Aramco attack in the eastern province.
1: Yeah. And the, the lack of a visible or direct U.S. response really shook the Saudis and the Emiratis, as we'll come on to. And I think has Provoked a a reassessment of of Saudi thinking that they don't automatically assume the U.S. government is on has their back as they would have done perhaps in in the past, and so we did see now a move to de-escalate because I think they realised that on their own more than they thought that they might have been, and there's a sense of abandonment by the Trump administration, which is similar to the sense that they felt. They'd been abandoned by the Obama administration in 2015 over negotiations for the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, that the Saudis were kept out of, as were all the other Gulf states. So there's a sense, I think, of a very new sense that the Saudis and Emiratis are on their own more than they thought. They have to therefore cut their cloth according to their need and find a way of living with Iran. In the Saudis' case, of course, this is complicated by the fact that the war in Yemen is ongoing. Uh, Iran clearly has given support to the Houthis. The Saudis, I think, would like to extricate themselves from the war in Yemen. The difficulty is, from the Saudi point of view, finding a way of doing so with honor and with dignity, and uh, doesn't look uh, hasn't, doesn't have the appearance of an operational and strategic defeat. And so, I think we're not there yet. We have obviously the Saudi-Houthi negotiations. We have. The Saudis' negotiation with the Southern Transitional Council, supported by the Emiratis, ironically. We see negotiations to try and bring the war to an end. But uh, that obviously plays into the Saudi-Iranian narrative as well, because the problem for Yemen, I think, is that uh, Yemeni parties cannot simply just get on with trying to find a way forward. There are these geopolitical interests involved as well. And clearly, Saudi Arabia and Iran are two of those, and it feeds into that dynamic as well.
0: Is there though a fear? Do the Saudis fear Iran? Or is it simply just this kind of jostling for uh, leadership in, in the in the region?
1: There is an element of geopolitical rivalry. The Saudis presenting themselves as a the leader in their view of Sunni Islam, Iran doing the same for, for Shia Islam as well. And so there is an element of geopolitical. And also, to some extent, maybe Arab-Persian rivalry as well, kind of recalling the old days when Saddam Hussein tried to use Arabism in the 1980s to rally support for his war against Iran. So there is an element of the geopolitical rivalry, but I think the Saudis are also concerned about the, the, not just the conventional size of Iran's armed forces, because the Saudis do have access to much better, more up-to-date equipment, and of course they have all the... Uh, agreements with Western powers to in security and defense. I think the Saudi threat that they face is from unconventional and asymmetric threats from Iran. And the fact that it's an attack on Aramco facilities in September was so complex, so precise. I mean, you had more than a dozen drones and ballistic missiles doing such damage, sorry, cruise missiles doing such damage. And that, escalated the threat enormously if you compare it back to the same the attack on the same uh, Abqaiq facility in 2006 by by al-Qaeda the attack then was a couple of guys in a truck ramming the gates and blowing themselves up this was on a scale and complexity that was off the charts and it was done so with such clever hiding of fingerprints that there still be no official uh, attribution. And the same can be said of the attacks on shipping in the Gulf of Oman and off the coast of Fujairah in May and June 2019 as well. The, they face an asymmetric and a unconventional threat that they've been shown to be really quite unable to match, both in terms of defenses, but also in terms of finding ways to, to counter it. And so I think that's where the threat lies. And I think as we've seen in Syria as well, over the nine years now, over the uprising, I mean, the Iranians are also masters at running proxy groups. You know, the Saudis, when they tried to do so in Syria, they, they didn't really have anything like the same impact. So I think they feel surrounded, and they feel surrounded for a reason. That in a, I mean, The Saudis obviously have an, an advantage in conventional uh, terms with their uh, defence and security partnerships, but on the unconventional terms, the ways that Iran can really inflict damage... And do so in clearly in a manner that is um, effective from an Iranian point of view. The Saudis don't seem to be able to have an answer, at least yet.
0: Okay, now let's let's look at the United Arab Emirates. Uh, that's interesting because uh, Mohammed bin Zayed uh, he plays a different game uh, than the Saudis do. But also you have this tension, don't you, between Abu Dhabi and Dubai, uh, because Dubai is is rather more friendly towards Iran uh, than Abu Dhabi is.
1: Well, there's always been a tension within the UAE. If you remember back to the 1980s, uh, three of the Emirates supported one side and four supported the other side in the Iran-Iraq war. There was never a unified federal-level policy. And in the, 19, in, in the 2000s as well, for example, even as Abu Dhabi was uh, negotiating with the George W. Bush administration for a, a one two three civil nuclear agreement to build a nuclear reactor in Abu Dhabi, which should open over the next year or so, Dubai was a loophole for illicit trade with Iran, including potentially nuclear components or components for Iran's own nuclear program. So there's always been a tension between Dubai and Abu Dhabi in terms of um, access to Iranian markets, and uh, there had been a a tightening of sanctions after twenty ten on Iran, which led also to a tightening up of Dubai's trade with Iran, but. When the JCPOA was signed in 2015 and there was talk of sanctions being lifted, Dubai's ruler, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid, actually told the BBC this: you know, Iran is a a neighbour and we need, effectively, we need to f- find a way of working and living with them. Whereas in, in Abu Dhabi, the focus is much more on hard power. It's on hard security threat. And Iran is seen as one of the two major security threats that uh, Mohammed bin Zayed feels he faces, the other being uh, political Islam and the Muslim Brotherhood. So from an Abu Dhabi perspective, there is a, a real threat, whereas from Dubai's point of view, there's more of a, a trade and commercial aspect to a relationship and also to other emirates as well, for example, Sharjah and Ras al-Khaimah. The challenge, I think, for the UAE, similar to the Saudis, is that they were the ones who were targeted in terms of shipping in, in May and June 2019, the attacks on, on shipping. And uh, again, the, the lack of a visible U.S. response and the fact that Saudi and UAE especially Abu Dhabi are so closely intertwined now in in Gulf politics the Emiratis also felt the shockwaves of the September attack on Saudi oil facilities and the lack of a US response and so actually the Emiratis I think maybe went further in trying to to reach out to Iran to deescalate uh, there also reports of a visit of a coast guard delegation in August and late July 2019 even before the Aramco attacks and then again, uh, the death of Soleimani, again, Emirati is saying, this is not the time for a war. Um, I think also very cognizant of the fact that a, an attack against Dubai, for example, a missile attack on Dubai could really do a lot of damage to Dubai's reputation and image as a safe place in an, an insecure part of the world. And that was even before coronavirus hit. And so we have seen de-escalation from an Emirati point of view as well, perhaps going even further in terms of reaching out quietly to Iranian counterparts than the Saudis have done.
0: You've touched on, on Yemen, but there is that charge, isn't there, that what Iran is doing is going around destabilizing the region. Uh, Bahrain is, uh, comes to mind as well in, in the charge sheet. What do you make of the charge? Is it reasonable? Is that what Iran is up to?
1: Well, if you talk to Saudis and Emiratis, that's certainly the threat perception that they feel. And uh, perceptions often drive actions. They can become reality because it's what feeds into a decision-making process. And especially the Saudis, they feel encircled by Iran. They feel Iran has, and particularly under Nuri al-Maliki, had enormous influence in Iraq to the north. They feel obviously Iranian support to the Assad regime in Syria to their not necessarily contiguous, but to their west, and um, with, with Hezbollah in, Libya, in, in Lebanon. Um. More recently, since 2011, the Saudis and Emiratis both uh, attributed disturbances in Bahrain to Iran and, of course, in Yemen to their south. So from a point of view of a threat perception and of a sort of decision-making matrix, the Saudis do feel encircled, and so do the Emiratis to some extent. So whether or not those allegations are true doesn't necessarily matter as much as the fact that the Saudis and Emirates think they're true, because that then drives a response. And we saw that in 2015, where they went into Yemen, claiming, of course, that they were doing so to counter Iranian expansionism, as they saw it, and the fact that the war in Yemen was actually announced by the Saudi ambassador in Washington, still Adel Joubert. He announced it at a press conference in Washington, D.C. It left no... No doubt as to what the audience was intended. Who who was the intended audience for that announcement? It was for, for the U.S. government effectively. It was the Saudi, Emirati way of saying to the Obama administration, we don't think you can just <clears throat> reduce Iran, or the threat Iran faces poses, to a nuclear agreement. The uh, the war in Yemen began the same week, as negotiators were meeting to finalize the, the details of the JCPOA. They then. It needed three more months, so the agreement wasn't actually signed until July 2015. But that same week, at the end of March 2015, they were meeting to finalise the agreement. That was the week the war began. And it was effectively a Saudi-Emirati rejection of the notion that you can separate an agreement on nuclear issues from Iran's regionally destabilising behaviour as they saw it. And so we're living with the consequences ever since. The war now, which I think, from rhetoric in 2015, the Saudis thought would be a quick... And decisive intervention. The war clearly has continued now for five years. It's been a humanitarian catastrophe. And it's dragged the Saudis into a war they cannot win militarily, but are finding it hard to get out of politically. So the perception has driven reality, created realities. And again, if you look at the actual nature of Iranian support in Bahrain, it was more rhetorical. I mean the and it to some extent has happened as the, the Bahraini government has cracked down on its opposition, members of the opposition have radicalized. There's been a hollowing out of the moderate middle ground, and as some of the opposition is splintered and radicalized, it's created some of those linkages that they claim to be kind of moving against in 2011. The same in Yemen, Uh, Houthi support, Houthi links with Iran are deeper now than they were in 2014, 2015, and it's a response as well. It's a kind of you know, sort of situation where actions spark reactions, and so there is now deeper involvement to some extent, or at least support for groups in Yemen, perhaps groups in Bahrain by elements in Iran, because they are also responding to, to events.
0: Well, that's very interesting, and and, and the, the Iranians, really the, the real triumph of the asymmetrical approach is they don't need to invest that much to get a pretty good return in terms of their geopolitical ambitions.
1: Well, yes, if you look at Yemen, for example, the support for the Houthis is not a huge financial burden on Iran for a relatively low level of support. They've engulfed the Saudis in a quagmire that they're stuck in. The Emiratis were as well until they redeployed at the end of twenty well, mid-2019. So for a kind of relatively limited investment, they've got a return that's, I think, probably surpassed all expectations. In a sense, they... Uh, Iranians played, I think, on the, the Saudi perception that they're being encircled, and now the Saudis have gotten into a campaign or into a war that they, they can't get out of. I think from an, an Iranian point of view, the uh, Iranians have also, I mean, clearly benefited from the rift in the GCC, the rift between Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain on the one side, Qatar on the other, with Kuwait and Oman in between a kind of a unified united GCC that could stand up to external threats in more of a kind of unified way would be to Iran's detriment. And uh, of course, what we saw was in May 2017, Donald Trump went on his first overseas visit as president. He went to Saudi Arabia. He called upon uh, America's Sunni partners in the Arab world to, to come together and to fight, not to fight, but to come together Uh, Against um, Iran and against international, as he saw it, terrorism. And what happened was, two days later, we had instead America's Sunni partners in the Gulf turning on each other with the the hacking of the Qatar news agency that led to the, well, that triggered the blockade two weeks later. Again, it's still ongoing. So Iran has benefited both from, uh, in their view, Saudi Arabia being kind of sucked into an unwinnable war in Yemen. And also from the rift in the Gulf, which has prevented a unified Gulf standing with the U.S. on the the U.S. attempt to have a maximum pressure campaign.
0: So let me ask you then, how deft have the Iranians been at at, at playing the situation? Turn, Turn it around, we've talked about the Saudi and Emirati response to Iran. How about the Iranians? How are they handling that relationship?
1: Well, the Iranian response in 2019 was... If, from an Iranian point of view, very effective, wasn't it? Uh, in response to the maximum pressure campaign imposed on, on Iran by the Trump administration, the Iranians responded with a, I guess what they would probably call a maximum resistance campaign. They, we saw this pattern of attacks beginning almost, instant, almost immediately after the April 2019 uh, decision, I think, to impose sanctions on the IRGC and to really tighten the, the campaign against Iran from the U.S., and a month later, we saw the first uh, naval, uh, first maritime attacks in the off the coast of Fujairah. Then we had the escalation, the kind of gradual pattern of attacks in May and June, and then in September 2019, also there was an attack on the East West pipeline in Saudi Arabia. So we saw a gradual series of attacks on critical infrastructure, on the kind of nodes that made Saudi Arabia and UAE economies really work. I mean, this attack on Aramco was the attack on the nerve center, the sort of beating heart of the Saudi economy and on Saudi Arabia's whole kind of economic place in the region and in the world. And so from an Iranian point of view, those attacks, which were, if we take the view that they were either directly or indirectly done by Iran or by Iranian-linked groups, They also, I think, were very successful not just in reminding the Gulf states of their weakness against unconventional attack, but then, in their view, drawing a wedge between the Gulf states and the US that perhaps, again, couldn't have been foreseen. I don't know if anyone necessarily foresaw that the US would not respond directly to the attacks, but the impact has been dramatic for the first time really since the 1980s, I think. The Saudis and Emiratis now feel that Gulf interests, the US interests in the Gulf are not necessarily synonymous with their own. I think, as long as Iran, where Iran was concerned, there had been a feeling in Riyadh and in Abu Dhabi that if Saudis and the UAE took action, they'd have US support and backing. And of course, that happened in 2015 with the Obama administration supporting them in Yemen. But they can no longer feel certain of that. They no longer have that confidence. And so they've now again, moved on to, I think, as the Iranians would see it, moved on to their territory in terms of actually calling for de-escalation. So it's been quite a dramatic shift in quite a short period of time in the less than well, what's been a year now since the maximum pressure campaign, since the attacks of May in June 2019. And when those attacks had happened, I think, you know, people thought there would be an escalation, and there wasn't. And I think that's a very different reality that we're now living in. And so from an Iranian point of view, it's really weakened, I think, the, the attempt by the Trump administration to align and to rally its, all of its Sunni Arab partners in the Gulf uh, to their side and to use that against Iran.
0: Now, the JCPOA was intended to prevent the Iranians from securing uh, nuclear weaponry. Uh, obviously, this idea of proliferation of nuclear weapons in the Gulf is a very frightening one. Do you think that there is an opportunity for Iran and the Gulf states to actually have a conversation to prevent that proliferation from happening?
1: Well, there's a lot of talk, I think, about a potential JCPOA 2.0 or if a Biden administration comes in in January 2021, would a Biden presidency try to salvage or try to reinsert the US into the JCPOA? I mean, that, of course, um, perhaps doesn't appreciate the degree of mistrust, I think. Even were the US to try and rejoin, why would the Iranians or anyone else think that's a potential future president of another political uh, side? Why would they not withdraw again, as Trump had done? I mean, there's a the problem of trust. I think were there to be new negotiations for a new agreement, they would need to learn from the flaws in the initial JCPOA, which was that the Gulf states plus Israel were not included, and they, they all then didn't have a, a stake in its survival. They didn't feel necessarily that the JCPOA had anything to offer them. And especially from a the Gulf point of view, were there to be agreements for a new JCPOA, I think the Saudis and Emiratis would definitely want to be involved. But then you could then turn the conversation onto non-proliferation, onto making sure that a nuclear program is civil entirely in its intent, not just in Iran, but also in, in UAE, which it is and in potentially in the Saudi, move towards a civil nuclear program as well, making sure that you have the safeguards, which the Emiratis have signed up to. The Saudis haven't yet actually signed up to them and don't seem to want to sign up to any safeguards. And so that could be the focus of a new, a new agreement, Um, especially when you think that Mohammed bin Salman in 2018 said that if Iran goes to a nuclear bomb, the Saudis will too. Now, there's no evidence Iranians are going for that, but the Saudis, it depends on to what threshold they see as evidence, or whether they just see intent and capability as two different things. So if there's a new agreement, I think there would be a way to try and lock them into some way of making sure that all the nuclear programs that we are seeing and will may see in the Gulf are, are kind of done with a confidence that they're for civil intent and purpose only and don't have a and not as cover for a potential nuclear breakout.
0: And as you say, involving the Gulf states and and Israel in in that new potentially JCPOA agreement. Let me ask you, though, finally, uh, Christian, looking forward to November, as we all are, what impact would a Biden presidency have on Iran-Gulf, the Gulf state uh, relations?
1: Well, if Biden wins and becomes president in January 2021, I do think that he would try to revive the JCPOA, which is still there of course. I mean it's not I mean the US would do, but the other parties have remained in the agreement even though it's fraying at the edges. Um he he might try to reinstate the US and as I said, I mean that that would be I think rebuilding the trust deficit would be would be quite difficult. But I mean certainly it's the case that Biden would almost in many ways be a continuation of the Obama administration's, almost like, like a third term, in, in terms of some of his Middle East advisors also being key figures who played uh, key roles in the Obama's administration's foreign policy. I mean, they're also figures who had invested heavily in the initial JCPOA. So it could be that the figures who might become senior uh, figures in the State Department or in other aspects of a Biden White House would at least have the contacts from their negotiating period in 2013 14 and 15 with Iranians to try and rebuild some of the confidence uh, to at least find a way forward they would at least have those networks and relationships that have been in abeyance for the last four years the i think the wider difficulties as i said is the sort of the notion of if the us comes back what's to prevent a future administration from pulling out again and The question then becomes what additional safeguards will Iran demand from uh, a revived agreement? And would those safeguards be acceptable politically in the US, especially because the US, whichever way it votes in in November, will still be heavily polarised. And Iran is one of the most polarising issues within that polarisation. So to what extent could a Biden presidency get away with making anything like concessions on safeguards to strengthen an agreement? that would be acceptable domestically to, to the U.S. And by the same token, to what extent could an Iranian government do the same that would be acceptable to an Iranian constituency? And Iran also, we mustn't forget, will have its own presidential election in 2021, and that will be the end of Hassan Rouhani. So there'll be someone else taking his place too, and he's also the architect of, of the deal. So I think the question of domestic politics is going to play a key role in what safeguards, concessions are made or are politically acceptable.
0: There, there was a time, wasn't there, when the Saudis and the Emiratis would have uh, seriously regretted uh, Donald Trump losing the presidency. But I, but I wonder if that's the case now, because as you said, they feel somewhat abandoned by Trump.
1: Yeah, I think the concern that they have is that they feel the same way now about two very, or two presidencies, which couldn't have been more different, both in their style and in the substance. But now to have a feeling that the US has abandoned them from two different, very different people, at what point has it become a pattern? And I think we will see moves from the Saudis and Emiratis, to, especially from the UAE, to try and rebuild relations very quickly with, with the Democrats, so it's already started. I think the Saudis might be more difficult just because um, Mohammed bin Salman is such a divisive figure now in Washington, on, in Congress especially, on both sides of the aisle but also just because he's become so closely associated with the Trump White House and with people like Jared Kushner. And so the Saudis have really become dragged into the polarization of US politics in a way that will be perhaps harder to extricate from once there's a new, or if there's a new Democrat uh, administration. I think the Emiratis have that level of bilateral uh, support that's still there. It'll be easier for them, perhaps, than for the Saudis.
0: Christian, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Christian Coates Ulrichsen, Middle East fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute. His most recent book, Qatar and the Gulf Crisis, was published in February by Hearst. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. And if you're a student or retired, we're now offering a new rate that amounts to a 70% discount check it out on ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.